eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Rock and roll. It's your daily dose of all things Gamecocks on the Inside the Gamecocks podcast. Here's J.C. Sherwood. Welcome in. Happy first day of September, everyone. It's the Inside the Gamecocks podcast. I am J.C. Sherbert, and I am happy. To be speaking with you today, happy to be alive and well. First day of September, man, it doesn't feel like it. I'm going to tell you this right now. You know, I um, I sort of, uh, my internal clock, I guess, my entire adult life, and really even when I was a kid, you know, sort of uh, is based on sports and seasons and, and you know, who's playing ball or, or what time, you know, they're playing or, or whatever. Um, you know, it's like it feels like March when there's NCAA basketball tournament action. Um, you know, it feels like uh, college football when the first of September rolls around. You know, it kind of feels like uh, the Super Bowl in February or January, you know, when you get those cold days with those cold playoff games and, you know, Christmas time with the bowls, you know, bowl games. You see these bowl games up, you kind of at Christmas time. And I've been all out of whack since kind of the world stopped in March. Um, no baseball until recently. Uh, you know, I, I keep – it feels – it feels like August 1st in a normal year. And I guess that's about right because, you know, we got about 25 days till kickoff. Um, I think in 11 days when you see the ACC kickoff, Clemson and uh, Wake Forest, Notre Dame and Duke, boy, they – they really gave those two a, a tough opener. <laughs> but, um, you know, schools like that are starting to play this weekend, Labor Day weekend, and happy Labor Day to all of you. We do have um, we do have some games, BYU and Navy. Uh, I don't think any FBS games or, or Power 5 games. We do have FBS. Um, those two are FBS schools. I get those confused. So no, no Power 5 games yet, but the next week the ACC starts. I think we have some Big 12. I'm not positive. Maybe they're the 26th as well. Uh, and then the SEC, of course, starts uh, at the end of the month. And uh, all systems are go with that, it seems. You know, there's been some hiccups here and there. I think at Auburn right now, if you look at one team in the league, you know, you're kind of looking at Auburn. You know, a couple of days ago, they'd only practiced twice in 10 days. You know, they're trying to kind of figure some things out. You have the situation with LSU's offensive line where a lot of their guys were out, but nothing too serious that's, you know, going to halt play or anything like that, unless there's something out there we don't know about. And then, of course, that's always possible. South Carolina, and I mentioned this yesterday, has done a fantastic job with the virus so far. Knock on wood, 
because, uh, you know, you can do all the protocols you want, but what I've learned about this thing and know about this thing is it can hit you with the slightest of error by the slightest, uh, of person, you know, involved, you know, the, you got one guy that ends up, you know, not even going rogue, but maybe being somewhere, you know, he's not used to and somebody there has the virus and there was like a chain of irresponsibility. So knock on wood, the Gamecocks are fine. Uh, I think that's uh, a positive thing. Uh, and we're are tracking toward a, uh, an opener on September 26 against Tennessee at williams Bryce stadium. Uh, some of the scuttlebutt out there looking like maybe a night game for the Vols. Uh, I said yesterday, I expect that to be announced this week. I still anticipate the SEC's TV and kickoff time schedule coming out this week. Um, and night games are good now, only 20,000 in the stands. So it's not going to be the sea of garnet and black that it normally is with the, the speck of orange. But uh, I tell you, the visiting bands aren't going to come this year so that you don't have to hear Rocky Top uh, unless the Gamecocks don't do well and the, the Tennessee players' parents start singing it in unison. Uh, although, you know, with, with the schools like Tennessee, Georgia, Clemson, of course, Clemson's not on the schedule this year, the Florida, the, the schools that maybe have connections with fan bases, the bordering states or the close states like Tennessee and Florida, you're going to have some visiting fans that, that know somebody that's a Gamecock that has tickets and they're going to go to the game together. So I don't, I don't think you're going to shut the Big Orange completely out, but uh, clearly there'll be – a vast majority of Gamecock fans, Carolina band, all that. So curious to see how it sort of looks but once it happens. Uh, you know, it won't be a deafening crowd, but certainly night game, Williams-Brice Stadium, lots to be excited about. Even if you're, you know, hanging out of the house and watching the game, uh, I think those kind of things, night games are better because, you know, you can you can kind of sleep in a little bit. You get up, you cook some up something to eat watch the other games, then start your cookout about 3 o'clock, have your buddies over, whatever. Be sure to practice social distancing uh, and all that, and then it builds up to the night game. I mean, there's just a lot to like uh, about night games, and it looks like the Gamecocks are going to get one first off the bat. So we will see when that is official, but that is the word that we are getting in terms of uh, the kickoff time for the Tennessee game. Um wanted to tell you guys, uh, you know, I, I appreciate the reviews that you've written. I went through them today. Uh, just an overwhelming response. I mean, I didn't – I was hoping to maybe get to 100 by the end of the season. I think we're up to like 145 reviews uh, and, and ratings on, on Apple Podcast. And so I appreciate that. I want to get that to 500. So please continue to spread the word and – you know, just punch on that app and rate it five stars or whatever, and then write a review if you have time. If you don't, I appreciate the ratings uh, anyway, because that gets a bigger audience, you know, in sort of the Gamecock podcast ecosystem. You know, I, I think that those of you that are listening to me probably know that we had the best podcast around. Uh, part of it was, was behind a paywall. Part of it wasn't uh, with Locked on the Gamecocks. And we uh, we were pretty much – rolling and then some contractual things happened and it was just unfortunate it fell apart um so i on this end i'm trying to get it back you know and we took a while off with this podcast during the pandemic uh just wasn't much to talk about uh in terms of a, a daily product i kind of was wondering 
how I would scope it and scale it and, you know, what kind of mix we'd have, uh, you know, and, and Tony will be back on the podcast too. I think what we're going to do is during game weeks, we'll have a you know special episode with him uh, and other members of the Big Spurs staff, plus, you know, any other guests from around college football uh, that we have. But um, that's what rating the podcast does. It helps me kind of get some visibility back with the Gamecock podcast ecosystem as I like to call it. So I just wanted to say thank you. And I appreciate all that. Um, I want to talk today about the trend line. And uh, I started thinking back and, and you know, if, if you, if you really kind of dig into it, as far as this off season goes, you know, there are some similarities and look before, before the naysayers start. And I know that there are several naysayers and look, I, I don't blame you for being a naysayer. Don't get me, don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm with you. You know, I, I, I understand the immense frustration and, and sadness and anger to a certain extent. You should never get truly angry, like overwhelmingly angry, but frustration and, you know, negative emotions. However, you know, you want to psychologically, I guess, interpret it. I understand those feelings from last year. So, I don't want you to sit there and think, ah, the na- you know, if you're a naysayer, you you don't know what you're talking about. You know, you're only you're only allowed to be a super fan and pump sunshine. No, that's not what I'm saying. But I do know that what you're going to say is, ah, you know, you should never compare this to that. And and I'm not, I'm not comparing Steve Spurrier to Will Muschamp. Number one, that's not fair to Will Muschamp. Steve Spurrier is one of the greatest coaches in the history of college football. Um it took him a little bit amount of time to kind of get his right staff in place. Uh, and that staff was key uh, to, for his success at South Carolina. And then he did not replace his staff, blah, 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 blah. Uh, and then things went downhill, but he's the best, one of the best coaches in the history of college football. I mean, he's a, a guy that the three programs he took over were, you know, not that successful <laughs> when he took them over and he left them. And, and in all three instances, up until David Cutcliffe going to Duke because Cut's been there a long time and they've had some unprecedented success there under him. But, you know, in all three instances, you know, he left the greatest coach in school history. I mean, Duke, Duke did win an ACC Coastal under Cutcliffe, but they've not won the ACC. They won the ACC under Spurrier. Florida had had, I guess, no SEC championships prior to the time he got there that counted. I think they had one where they were – Actually, 10-0-1, but they're on probation. Um, and then they have one under probation under Spurrier. Uh, but then they won, what, six? And now, you know, everybody loves the Florida Gators, and they're one of the best programs in college football. And then if you look at the Gamecocks, you know, they had never won 11 games in a season. They won it three straight years. They won their first SEC East. Um, you know, still some things to accomplish out there for the program, you know be nice to get to a major bowl, one of the traditional major bowls one day. Also would be nice to win the SEC if you're South Carolina. But he accomplished a bunch, and he left every program, you know, with a track record of success. Uh, and I think, you know, the standards were raised. You know, I think that if you look at Florida and Duke both, you know, after he left, the standards were raised. Now, you know, what do you do with those standards? You know, Duke didn't really do much for – 20 years, however many, before they hired Cutcliffe. Um, Florida certainly went through a bit of a wilderness after, you know, with Zook and then 
Urban Meyer in that situation, uh, unprecedented success uh, with the backdrop of a lot of drama. And then Muschamp was there and then McElwain was there. And finally they, they, they settled on Mullen. It looks like they may have you know hit on something. Um, but the standards are there. And so I'm, I'm not comparing Will Muschamp to Steve Spurrier. I, I just, that's not what I'm saying. Uh, this is more of like a history lesson. And sometimes history repeats itself and sometimes history doesn't. Uh, but if you think about it, my feeling is, even though they went to the Outback Bowl that year, which is a, you know, the 2012 and 2001 teams played in the Outback Bowl. Those were two of the better teams in program history, especially from a talent standpoint. So, you know, going to the Outback Bowl is, you know, it, it's it's kind of a, a good thing. Although I understand that you can go to a bowl game too many times, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so the 2008 team went to the Outback Bowl. I think that was Steve Spurrier's worst team. I think that, you know, it opened with a loss, you know, uh, on the road. All right, so they opened with NC State. It was a bad NC State team. Uh, they had the Tommy Beecher debacle starting at quarterback. Smelly comes in, throws some late touchdowns. Then they go on the road the next Thursday night and lose to Vanderbilt for a second straight year. Had a heartbreaker at home against Georgia. Then they started kind of winning some games. You know, you had some games that they, you know, they won. They beat Arkansas. Um, ended up getting to seven wins. Seven wins. Uh, and then the bottom fell out. Lost to Florida 56-6. to Lost to Clemson 31-14, which got Dabo that job. It was pretty long-term. That was a tough loss. Um, and then they weren't even competitive in a 31 to 10 loss to Iowa in the Outback Bowl. So after that season, Steve Spurrier made a lot of changes. Um, a lot of people left. You know, that was when Kiffin went to Tennessee. David Reeves followed him there. Ron Cooper left, I think, and went to LSU. Um, you know, you, you had John Hunt getting fired right after the Clemson game that year before the bowl. Um, you know, it was just a, it was just a situation where, you know, there are a lot of people that left. Uh, I think you had Ellis Johnson, Shane Beamer, and uh, Steve Spurrier Jr. left on the staff. You could have nine assistants back then. Um, I even think that uh, – did Rich Lesky leave that year? Was there a different special team? Yeah, there was a different special teams coach. So Beamer took over for Reeves as the recruiting coordinator, uh, and they went out and hired six coaches plus a new strength coach, Craig Fitzgerald. They hired Craig Fitzgerald. They got him in there. He got uh, Lorenzo Ward came in to coach the secondary, G.A. Mangus quarterbacks. Uh, oh, Robert Gillespie left and went to Oklahoma State, so Jay Graham came in and took over. Eric Wolford took over for his one year. Uh, it was kind of a revamp of the staff, and, you know, that. and in spite of all that and all that turnover, the 2009 recruiting class had guys like Alshon Jeffrey and Stephon Gilmore and Devontae Holloman uh, and DJ Swearinger, uh, and, and they benefited because, you know, South Carolina did have some coaching changes internally, but Spurrier was still there. But meanwhile, Philip Fulmer got fired at Tennessee. Tommy Bowden got fired at Clemson. I think there was changes at North Carolina, North Carolina state. I'm not sure that may have been in 07 when that happened. That's right. There was 07 when that happened because they signed Melvin Ingram and Wesley Saunders and those guys, but it was, it was a different deal. Uh, the guts of the program changed, even though Steve Spurrier was still there. And, you know, including Craig Fitzgerald coming in. And I've got a question in the mailbag, which I'm going to read. 
today about the strength and conditioning coach and, and all that. And that changed for Will Muschamp this offseason. Uh, you got a new receivers coach in Joe Cox. You got a new offensive coordinator, quarterbacks coach in Mike Bobo. Um, you got a new running backs coach in Des Kitchings. Uh, on the defensive side of the ball, you got a new linebackers coach in Rod Wilson. Kyle Krantz is promoted, kind of like Shane Beamer was, special teams coordinator. Um, and then Paul Jackson comes in and takes over for Kev, uh, Jeff Dillman uh, as far as the, uh, the strength and conditioning program goes. Um, and so there are a significant amount of new coaches. Um, not quite as many, I think, as Spurrier had, uh, especially percentage-wise because there's 10 assistants now. But there is, there is a lot of change. Uh, you know, and maybe we don't talk about it a whole lot because we haven't, you know, spoke about it and we had a pandemic and things got delayed. But if you think about it, that's, you know, you got new running backs, new receivers, new quarterbacks. So everything but offensive line and tight ends on one side of the ball. And then you got new linebackers on, and oh, shoot, I didn't even mention this linebacker and defensive line. On uh, the defensive side of the ball, because John Scott Jr. left to go to Penn State, Tracy Rocker's there. So, you know, you add Rocker, Rod Wilson, Des Kitchings, Joe Cox, Mike Bobo to the mix. That's five plus a strength coach. That's a big chunk of your staff. Um, And so I think that, you know, you look at that, then you look at the fact, too, that you know, this 2020 recruiting class reminds me a lot of that 09 class where you got guys that, you know, people weren't, you know, people weren't expecting the Gamecocks to get Stephon Gilmore halfway through the process. They thought he was Clemson. Then lo and behold, the Gamecocks got him. And then they flipped Holloman from Clemson, who was, he was actually committed to Clemson. And uh, Swearinger was committed to Tennessee for a while, although that was more a case of the Gamecocks deciding to go all in on him which I don't think they regret. <laughs> uh, Alshon Jeffrey, of course, was committed to Southern Cal for a while, and then the Gamecocks had to hold off Kiffin in Tennessee. But, look, I mean, that was an impressive piece of recruiting, just like the 2020 class, to me, in the face of a not-so-good season. You know, uh, you still hold on to it. You still got the guys. So, you know – there are some similarities there. And if you think about it, that 9 team, even though they finished with the exact same record as the 16 or I mean, sorry, 8 team, that was a much better team. And honestly, had they uh, – and I don't know who to blame for this, but maybe I blame Eric Hyman. I don't know. People want to blame Ray Tanner for bowl games and stuff. So we can go back in time and blame Eric Hyman. Uh, if they hadn't been in the Birmingham Bowl, maybe they'd have been in something a little better – I don't know that the Gamecocks would have lost to Connecticut in the frozen pizza Papa John's Bowl, which sort of sucked. But, but you think about that year, going back to it, 09, you know, Carolina started 5-1. and one. Um, And, you know, beat NC State on the road in an ugly game. The next week they had a shootout in Athens, lost. But they beat Florida Atlantic. Uh, they beat Ole Miss. They beat South Carolina State. They edged Kentucky. Then they go on the road to play number two, Alabama, which was a close game in the fourth quarter. That's the Mark Ingram. um, And Alabama won the national title that year. That's the Mark Ingram Wildcat game. Came home, struggled against Vanderbilt. Things got bad. They lost at Tennessee. They lost at Arkansas. 
Then something about the Florida game. Florida was number one in the country at the time. They came in, it was CBS, and Carolina played them pretty well. 24-14 Gators, Tim Tebow's senior year. Um, Carolina played them pretty well. The next week against the first ACC Atlantic Championship team Dabo had at Clemson, Carolina beat them good and started the streak. 34-17 to 17, uh, before the debacle of the Papa John's Bowl. That team also beat number four Ole Miss at home. Ole Miss was number four in the country on a Thursday night, uh, which was, the I think, the, the biggest win in terms of ranking at home in program history at the time. Of course, the next year Bama came in, and that was erased. But, you know, there were some – Uptimes and downtimes, but I think after the 2009 season, especially after that went over Clemson, you know, there was hope because um, you, you have a team that, you know, had basically a two-game stretch at Tennessee and Arkansas where they didn't play well. But then other than that, you know, you're talking about they lost by, you know, a fourth-quarter game to the number two team in the country and eventual national champions, a fourth-quarter game against the then number one-ranked Gators, uh, and then a four-point loss – uh, to Georgia, which they could have won in a shootout. So that 9 team kind of was the beginning of the turnaround for Steve Spurrier. So my point of saying all that is this. Um, I don't know if things are going to work out this year with an all-SEC schedule. I, I don't know if Will Muschamp's tenure is going to work out or not. I know that, you know, Steve Spurrier had a little bit more leeway because he was Steve Spurrier. Um. But sometimes you gotta sometimes you gotta shake up your staff, shake things up and head a different direction when things aren't working. Obviously, last year was Muschamp's worst team at Carolina. Um, not talent-wise, I don't think, but results-wise, you can't argue with it. And when things kind of are trending in the wrong direction, you know, good coaches or coaches that you know are trying, you know, they don't just stand pat. You know, they go and, and make the changes needed, and he did. And so we'll see kind of how that works out. Uh, but I wanted to kind of give you guys that history lesson there, take you back about 12 years and uh, tell you that, hey, once upon a time before good things happened, bad things were happening with Steve Spurrier in South Carolina. Um, and, I th- you know, I think that there are some similarities there. That doesn't mean there's going to be similar results. Although the first game of the season could be seven to three. <laughs> the more I look at it, the more I think, huh. Tennessee and South Carolina both returned some good pieces on defense uh, and their question marks on offense, but uh, for both schools. Uh, and it may just be one of those good old fashioned opening day SEC low scoring type of games at Williams Price on September 26th. But anyway, so I wanted to take you guys through that. Um, there are there's a lot of different a uh, lot of different things going on uh, in terms of uh, the program uh, and dynamics and and you know I think because people were kind of worried about having a season or not I, I, you know I think that uh, maybe they were overlooked a bit. All right, mailbag time, mailbag time, and uh, the first one comes in hot off of Twitter, and uh, if you want to roll us. Uh, on Twitter, roll a question. Use tweet at the Big Spur uh, Pod. Uh, it's the, it's the Inside the Gamecocks podcast Twitter account. Appreciate all you guys following that. Um, this first one comes in for Doctor Bob, Doctor Robert C. Frost, actually at C. Frost Ten. 
JC, what have you heard about Devontae Davis? The staff was real high on him last year before he got hurt, but I haven't heard anything about him this year. Thanks for all you do. I love the podcast. Well, thank you, Robert. Um, nothing much. He's just kind of working his way back uh, is the best thing I can say about that. And, uh, you know, some guys, it takes them a little while to get back. And uh, that was a bad injury. The first foot injury, Liz Frank injuries are tough. Um, I know the staff has been real high on his potential, you know, but when you come over from junior college and you try to hit the ground running, it's, uh, you know, it's tough um, when you get that setback like that. Uh, I do know that defensive line depth is a, is a decision, is a, is a tough thing <laughs> right now. Um, that's, a, that's a red flag, and I'll have an article about new concerns and old concerns on the thebigspur.com here this week, so you guys go ahead and uh, – and check that out. All right. Thank you, Dr. Robert, for that question. Inside the Gamecocks at gmail.com. Uh, first one comes in from Keith. Keith C. Why was everyone so down on Kurt Roper? Uh, the offense was pretty good in 2017. I would agree to disagree. I, I will agree to disagree on, on that one. Um, I thought when you look at the, Ro- the Roper deal, 2016, the first year, um, I, I I thought he did the best he could. You had a freshman quarter. Your best quarterback was a true freshman that should have been in high school. Your best running back was Rico Dowdle, who was a high school quarterback. Uh, your best receiver was Debo, who was a guy that never played healthy and was hurt that year, or a true freshman in Brian Edwards. Um, you had Hayden Hurst, who that year had not um, – had not uh, played a lot of tight end. He was a receiver in 2015. Um, so, so they were trying to kind of piece together. Plus, they had a terrible offensive line um, that year. And, and so I thought Roper did, uh, you know, and you could certainly disagree with, like, what his game plan for the Clemson game where Jake's running back and forth to the sidelines. I mean, I, I thought that took Bentley out of rhythm. Uh, I thought the fact that they kept trying to run it up the middle against Florida early on cost them in that game. They opened it up at the end, and, and they sort of figured out they could move the ball against the Gators, but they weren't going anywhere, running it with Dowdle up the middle. Um, you know, I you can question some things during that season, certainly. But, you know, look at the personnel and the, and the situation they're going with, and, and, and I, I think you say, okay, he did the best he could. Well, in 2017, certainly South Carolina went nine and four, but uh, that was not a very good offense. And in fact, the 2018 offense was much better than, than 2017. And in 2017, you had Edwards uh, and Hurst. Now, you didn't have Debo after the first game. Maybe they got too reliant on him, but, you know, they, they ranked 99th in the country out of 130 teams. Um, points per game. Uh, I, I I don't, you know, they were pol- terrible against the run. I mean, running the ball, 123 a game. Um, you had fifth, scored 15 against Tennessee, 17 against Louisiana Tech. Had A&M down 17-7, took your foot off the gas, lost that one. You were not competitive against Clemson. Um, Georgia, the defense kept you in that one. It's 24-10. Um, 
And then the 13 points game three against Kentucky was a complete embarrassment. So I think at the end of the day, you know, you look at Roper at that point and you got the last year at Florida plus the first two at South Carolina. And, and I, I think, I just don't think it was going to work. Um, and, and I wish looking back on it, Kurt Roper had had decided to kind of call it and haul it as they say a little bit, uh, rather than like putting a lot on Bentley in terms of, you know, the, the RPOs and things like that, you know, and, and I thought that as a quarterback's coach, I thought, you know, Jake Bentley started struggling down the, down the stretch quite a bit um, as the season went on. And then, you know, you got to the second half of the Outback Bowl that year with no Kurt Roper and he played better. So, you know, I, we can, you could certainly in hindsight say, well, you know, Brian McClendon at, at the end of last year was, you know, inferior to what Kurt Roper did. And, and I tend to agree. I think Brian McClendon's problem was not necessarily how he wanted to attack a defense or, you know, what he was trying to do or whatever. I, I think he was kind of learning on the fly and, and he didn't have like a second pitch. Will Muschamp said that. So, you know, they made some adjustments at times and at other times if, if what they did well was not working, it just wasn't working. Um, and so that's the thing, you know, I, I don't know. I'm always skeptical of the guy that works for the guy, you know, unless he's gone and actually done it on his own, um, for a while, uh, you know, and Kurt Roper was the offensive coordinator at Duke. Um, and you look at Scotty Montgomery too, who ended up going to, uh, East Carolina for a disastrous couple of years calling plays. You know, the Cutcliffe guys, you know, Cutcliffe's the guy calling it, you know. And um, so I'm always kind of skeptical of guys like that. I think looking back, if I were Will Muschamp when I first got hired, considering the the negativity about Florida's offense in general when he left, um, I wouldn't have hired anybody from offense at Florida. You know, and, and defense probably, yeah, Mike Peterson, Travars Robinson came from down there, Coleman Hutzler. But offensively, I probably would have just gone in a completely different direction. But that's me, and that's hindsight. So, so that's Roper. Roper's coaching running backs at NC State now. Uh, so, so there you go. So that yeah, the offense was good enough to win. Don't get me wrong, but I'll I'll make this final point to you, Keith. Uh, in two thousand and seventeen, Carolina beat Arkansas forty-eight twenty-two. The defense scored three touchdowns that day. That was an opportunistic defense. Now I. I think, too, another thing to consider was the offense went up and down the field against a pretty good NC State team with a lot of NFL talent uh, that day in Charlotte with Roper calling plays from the sidelines um, rather than the press box. And maybe maybe, maybe his line of sight was a little better uh, being down there because certainly they never replicated that that season. Thanks for the question, though, man. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, Eddie. Eddie says, JC, love the show and the site. I've lived out of state for many years now, but because of your work, I can stay informed and up-to-date on my Gamecocks. I wanted to get your opinion on how you think not being able to evaluate in camps this year is going to affect the recruiting class this year next. Sometimes our staff is big on in-person evaluations in camps and has uncovered several players that end up being big contributors. I'm concerned what these restrictions may mean. Will this be a lost year? Can we make some positives from this pandemic situation? Thanks for your time. Well, Eddie, you know, it works both ways. 
Um, and, and I do think that I think the reason you put a preview on in-person evaluations is sometimes the film lies. I think that how you work around that is you gather as much information from people you trust and you be a little bit more selective with your offers, which South Carolina has done. Uh, and you just try to do the best you can in the by having an evaluation process, you know, without the in-person element to it. Um, and it does work both ways because you remember Devontae Wyatt a couple of years ago from Atlanta, big defensive tackle. He had no offers. He comes and camps at South Carolina. He's a no-brainer take. They take him. He commits. Well, Georgia had him in camp a month later. And then Georgia offers, and he ended up at Georgia. So, you know, kind of keeping guys secret is, is probably not a bad thing. Uh, I know the rankings probably don't look as great, but, you know, some of these guys, like I'll give you an example, Nick Barrett, the defensive tackle from Goldsboro, North Carolina, the Gamecocks have committed. Now, that guy could be a top 100 guy had he camped. Um, I talk to people that do the rankings. They're, they're just, they want to make sure he is 6'2", six, 6'2 two, six, two you know. Um, and so, to me, you know, I, I think it works both ways. Now, do I think, you know, what do I, what do I think about this recruiting class as a whole? I think it's one of those where you look at the individual players and you see why, you know, they've taken a lot of them. A lot of them are just fast guys, which they need more speed. Um, there's linebackers that can grow and then things like that. But um, I don't know that I would call it a lost year. I think what you want to have happen and I've said this, it needs to be a lot like that 06 class Spurrier brought in where they went out and found Captain Munnerlin and Darian Stewart and Emmanuel Cook. Uh, didn't really have to beat a whole lot of great players, but great teams, the who's who in college football on those guys or anything, Eric Norwood. Um, and you want to hit on some guys like that because then what you do is you combine it with the 2020 class and you kind of fill gaps in that way. You know, you – you can kind of survive. Let's say some of these guys don't work out because you didn't really have the info on them, which I, I think they do. I think, you know, but then you see them in person and you're like, Oh, maybe not. Um, so I, you know, let's say someone don't work out. Well, you, you know, you still got 2020 and then 2022 and 2022 obviously is off to a great start with Gunnar Stockton, a uh, five-star quarterback. I mean, that's about as good as it gets. So, so you got to kind of look at it like that. Um, so I don't, I don't know about lost year. Uh, I think there are some positives, uh, you know, just from my standpoint, as far as evaluating them goes, uh, there's a lot of guys in this 2021 class. I like, I mentioned Nick Barrett. I'll tell you John Darius Morgan, the big offensive lineman out of Birmingham. He's tough. He's a big physical kid. I mean, you, you think about him and, you know, Tyson Wanamaker from last year's class from 2020 class. Think about those two cats at guard here in a couple of years. My goodness, great googly moogly. <laughs> and that'll get you excited. So it's it, recruiting's almost like putting a puzzle together. And and I wish I wish more people would would think about it that way, I guess. But but they don't. Um they just kind of stars this, stars that, where's our team ranking, which is fine. We build a successful business with guys wanting that. Uh but I think sometimes with the kids themselves. It gets a little unfair because a guy may come in with a three-star rating, and and it used to be a three-star rating was like that was that was the majority of college football players, and you'd get excited about some three stars. Now it's like they must suck if they're a three-star player. That's not true. That's not true. In fact, most of the guys that get drafted in the NFL 
are rated three stars or below. Now that said, percentage wise, you know, four and five stars get drafted at a higher clip, but heck, there are a thousand three stars every year. And the percentages don't matter when you're trying to build a college football roster. There's nobody sitting there going, well, percentage wise, if you have 12 NFL players on your roster, you got 12 NFL players on your roster. So that's the thing. But thank you so much, Eddie, for that question. Good luck living out of state. Um, I've lived out of state before, and sometimes it's kind of uh, kind of crazy. Um, kind of miss home, right? All right. So Phil, Phil emails in. Just wanted to say I'm a big fan of the podcast. I've been listening to the Gamecock Central and other podcasts for a few years, but I really enjoyed the down-to-earth relatability and honest aspects of your podcast. Well, thank you. That's a big that's a big compliment. I kind of like that. I kind of like being down to earth. I'm 30 years old. I've been a diehard Gamecock fan all my life. I appreciate what you do. I noticed that something people are not really talking about with this team and quite possibly could be the biggest aspect of how well this team does this year is strength and conditioning. One of Muschamp's biggest hires this past year was the new strength and conditioning coach. That'd be Paul Jackson. And yeah, I agree. I haven't really heard how the team has done or how in shape the squad is at this time of the season. I know COVID probably messed some things up. I just want to know if you knew any player has improved under Jackson or if the whole team has improved bigger and stronger, faster than the year before. This could be a factor, especially if we lack depth at certain positions. Thanks again. Uh, and then he says, also, I believe you nailed it when talking about the D-line being a weak point this year. Definitely could see that being an issue with unproven starting players and a lot of talent, but unknown. Uh, with the D-line, I think it's the depth. Uh, I think I think they need to build quality depth. Uh which I think if Rick Sandage and Zach Pickens could get the starting jobs, uh, beat the seniors out, which is hard, hard to beat a senior out. Um, and then those guys come in, or if they just rotate those four, they should be fine. Uh, I think guys like Boogie Huntley and Micaiah Scott, the true freshman, you know, need to come on too. Cause I, I think if you can go six deep, six deep is good. Uh, as far as the conditioning goes, and I want to say this because I, I don't. I think that obviously there's a lot of things that I've heard about Paul Jackson compared to, to Jeff Dillman that the players generally like and feel good about. Um, I think that, and I say this a lot. Sometimes you just need a new voice, uh, and I think you go through the battle of the summer, and it is a battle. You're battling fatigue. You're battling yourself. It's it's a mental thing, uh, and then you go four and eight, and you hear the same voice the next summer. Maybe you're not going to quite buy in. Um, and so that's changed. Unfortunately, there hasn't been the entire summer and all that. And, uh, most of the guys came back in really good shape. Some of the guys did not. Um, I think they're getting there. And I think that with the way the practice schedule started kind of spread out and the fact that they do, you know, there are days where they just go work out to get in shape or whatever. I think by the time the season starts, there will be what I'm looking for, Philip is, how have, have they done anything as far as quickness and speed? Uh, I thought at times last year, you know, South Carolina did not look as fast as they should have, even with guys that were sure of themselves. Uh, I know in 2018, when the Gamecocks had all those injuries on defense, you looked at that defense, you're like, man, they're slow. Well, that they, they had guys out there that had no business being out there. They didn't know what they were doing. Um, and you're going to look slow no matter how fast you are doing that. Um, one player I will tell you that, that you know, on this note, that, that's had a great camp is Brad Johnson, who redshirted last year. Uh, that was kind of just what he needed. Um, and he's playing the Sam linebacker. 
Uh, and certainly at that spot, it's not always on the field, but sometimes it is. I mean, you know, watch for him uh, to be rolling. And also, you know, cross your fingers about the injuries. I, I don't know that the, a new strength coach solves every injury issue. And obviously you had the freak injury to Marshawn Lloyd. Um, but the, they can't afford, you know, and if, if it's not strength and conditioning changes, that they need to look at something else. You know, if they have as many injuries as they do, uh, they did, you know, in previous years. You know, that, that stuff needs to kind of – you can't do that at South Carolina because, you know, your top 22 can usually play with anybody in the league. You get kind of beyond that with depth and, it, you know, <laughs> you don't know. And that's what's going to make this year pretty interesting because a lot of teams' top 22s are going to be gutted a little bit uh, at times because of COVID. And then you look at something like LSU where – Every single day, the agents in Baton Rouge are talking their guys into leaving and going to the NFL. Um, so that's going to be interesting. It's going to be a really interesting year. But uh, thank you so much, Philip, for the kind words. I appreciate you listening to my podcast and, and, and other Gamecock podcasts, too. I think, you know, with the way local radio outside of Columbia has disappointed this fan base, uh, I think things like this podcast – other Gamecock podcasts, JB and Goldwater is a daily show that streams out of Charleston, not affiliated with a radio station. Um, I think Gamecock fans deserve better. And so the more you listen and, and make this part of your daily routine, you know, the better off we all are. So thank you for that. And thank you for being a part of it. All right, Roger. 10 Gamecock, Tennessee Gamecock. Love the podcast, JC, and the Big Spur site in general. I don't always agree with you, but that's okay. That's okay, Roger. That's, that's, this is the United States of America. I'll never be mad at you for disagreeing. But I always know why you feel the way you do. I can easily see your reasoning and your opinion, which is all I can ask for. Here's the question. I'll start off by saying I agree with you that the Big Ten and others will not have a season next spring like they are. But saying if they did, would players enroll early in 2021 – be eligible to play that season like they do in the spring scrimmage. I don't know if it's clarified one way or the other, but what's your gut opinion? I think they have to. Uh, and I think the fact that they're redshirting everybody this year lends itself to that because I think there are going to be a lot of people in the Big Ten that opt out if they play it. And I'm not so sure they don't play it. I think that they have to – as you know, and it's kind of funny because it's hypocritical to me because the, as much as the Big Ten is – turning their nose down only at the SEC and, and us folks here in the South about all this there with as much vigor and, and enthusiasm, they're chasing this spring idea to start in January. Uh, when, when, you know, that's only like it's September 1st, man, you know, we got three months. Are things going to be that much safer in three months? I don't know. You know, and, and they seem to really be pushing for this. And so uh, I don't know, but I think, I think that's, and then I think to me, I think that's fine. You know, and I honestly, I would, I, I with everybody red shirting, it kind of blows my mind how that would work out, but I, I think it would be fine. Um, you know, and, and just let them go ahead and do it because, you know, you're going to have some situations where they're going to need them or they're going to be playing walk ons. Uh, in at certain places, and I think it hurts the schools like Ohio State that have multiple guys that can legitimately leave and go to the NFL than it does, you know, maybe in Minnesota or somebody like that or Rutgers. So it's it's going to be interesting if they do play. I think to see how some of these rosters do. But thanks for your question, Roger. 
really appreciate it. And uh, thanks for uh, being a member of the Big Spur and um, also rocking this podcast with us. All right, final question from the mailbag day. It's been a great mailbag day. Thank you again. If you've got a mailbag question inside the Gamecocks at gmail.com or tweet at the Big Spur Pod, follow at the Big Spur Pod on Twitter. Got to get those numbers up too. Don't forget, go to Apple Pods. Keep those awesome ratings and reviews going. I really, really appreciate them from the bottom of my heart and soul. Interesting question here from Sawyer. He says, would the program be in a better spot if Sean Elliott were hired instead of Muschamp? I do not know. Uh, I think that that Sean Elliott has done a fantastic job at Georgia State. Georgia State's a tough job. Um, I think that it's a young program with some things going for it. Uh, and, and generally those programs, you, you don't go out and go to a bowl your first year. Uh, you don't go up and beat Tennessee in year three. Uh, I think a lot like the job Skip Holtz did at East Carolina uh, when he went there from South Carolina. Um, you know, Elliot's done a good job of doing some surprising things and, and having, you know, two bowls in three years at Georgia state is nothing to sneeze at. Um, so I, I can't tell you that he would not have been successful at South Carolina. Now more successful than Muschamp. What does that mean? You know, would he be a game above 500? Would he have gone forward eight in year three? How long would it have taken him? Uh, I know he, he probably would have hired a pretty good staff. Um, I think at the time it would have been a very tough hire to make because of the loss to the Citadel. Um, and people were just so ready to move on from the Spurrier era. Uh, and he stayed with Muschamp and got some pretty good offensive line recruits and then left and took over his own program. Um, so I don't know. That That's a question that's one of those hypotheticals that, you know, it's hard to say. Because, uh, you, you you know, I've seen what Sean Elliott's done at Georgia State, which is a program with resources but not a winning tradition, and it's not easy to win there. Uh, and I'm impressed. But I also look at, at the, you know, the job Muschamp did up until the Florida game in 2018, where by all accounts, this program and this build was ahead of schedule. So we'll see what happens this year. Uh, you'd probably want to ask me, ask me this at the end of this season, Georgia state's playing this year. So, or this fall, ask me this at the end of this year and we'll say, say this, but I'll, I'll say this, you should pull for Sean Elliott every single weekend and want him to have the best success he possibly can because, you know, he wins at Georgia state. Maybe something happens. The game guys do make a change. He'll crawl on his belly through glass to get this job. Just like most of the other Spurrier assistants, you know, Sean Elliott, Shane Beamer, you know, those guys are both hell, hell of good coaches. So, you know, you, you always want to have a backup plan in life. And uh, I think that, you know, the better Sean Elliott does and, and the more proven track record he, he has, obviously the better shot he has at the job. And I'm, you know, he's a Gamecock, you know, I'm pretty sure he'd take it. So, I don't think it's a bad thing he's doing well. But hindsight and that, yeah, that's just a tough call because I don't know. I, I know this. I know that – I know it would not have been a popular hire at the time. And, um, and, and you know, that sucks because, I, you know, that loss to the Citadel, I mean, obviously you can't lose to Citadel. But, you know, you look at every other game the Gamecocks played when Elliott was the head coach, and it was like close loss after close loss. 
when the team could have easily folded up the tent and quit. That team was not very good. That team could have quit. They fought until the last whistle of the Clemson game that year. They scored a touchdown with three seconds left to cut that game against Clemson, which played for the national title that year to five. You know, that team played A&M within a touchdown on the road. That team came back for 17-0 against Tennessee, made it a field goal game, had Jarrell Adams not fumble. Gamecocks would have probably won and shocked the Vols in Rocky Top. You know, Florida game, the Gators were kind of rolling, and they came back, made it 17-14 late. I mean, they never quit. And I think that that's, that, that, that's something that got severely overshadowed by the loss to the Citadel, you know. And I'm not saying had Elliott beaten the Citadel, he would he had gotten the job. I think, I think Ray Tanner had you know Tom Herman, Kirby Smart, Will Muschamp in that order, and that's kind of the way it was from the start. Um, and I'm not the only one that's reported that. So, but uh, you know Elliott, uh, you know I, 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 I'm a big fan of his as a per. He's a great person, great coach, uh, very very enthusiastic. Um, who knows? Who knows if he'll be at South Carolina one day or not? But it, it's just hard to say, you know, as we sit here on September first, twenty twenty, if the program would be in a better spot or not. My guess is it would be very, it'd be pretty similar. Um, and my guess is that probably Sean Elliott would have not gotten the the leeway that Muschamp has so far. Uh, and we can get into why. You, you know, you can send another mailbag question. I can tell you why on that sometimes. But that's a that's a long way of saying I don't know. <laughs> we will see. All right, that's all the time we have today on the Inside the Gamecocks podcast. Again, thank you so much, so much for the mailbag questions, for the reviews, um, for subscribing to the thebigspur.com. We still, I think, 50% off over there right now. Got some good content coming for you this week. Um, love talking Gamecocks. Be sure to check me out tomorrow on JB and Goldwater. Uh, if you don't hear the live stream off YouTube or Twitter, you can uh, get it on the uh, on the Apple Pods app at JB and Goldwater is the name of the show. Uh, also, I will uh, I will have a JC and Morgan college football podcast. That's myself and Mike Morgan. We're going to be talking about the season and liftoff and all that good stuff. Uh, and that's kind of a general college football thing. Comes out weekly, sometimes you know once every couple of weeks. Uh, myself and Mike Morgan, my good friend from. ESPN and the SEC Network. So check that out as well. Be back hollering at you tomorrow, Gamecock fans. This is Inside the Gamecocks podcast. J.C. Sherbert, have a great day, everyone.